1: Take a treat retreat at McDonald's right now. Get a cafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just ninety nine cents until eleven a.m. Price of participation may vary. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault of a child. Listener discretion
2: advised. That's something that I share with my with my child and with other kids, and just you know that adults don't need help from children. I don't care if it's an old lady crossing the street. You go get an adult and you have them help that person, but it is not a child's responsibility to help an adult in need.
1: This is I Survived, the podcast where we talk to women who have lived through the worst things imaginable and all the tragic, messy, and wonderful things that can happen after survival. I'm Van Banmal. Mitzi Sanchez grew up in Vallejo, California,
2: outside San Francisco in the 90s. I'm the first generation of my family that is uh, that was born and raised here in the United States. My family's from Mexico, um, Jalisco, Mexico. And um, gosh, I'm like in the middle of about six kids <laughs> that my mom has. We were like a soccer family. We all loved playing sports. That was like the passion that was passed down from the eldest all the way down to the youngest. My family was always really super cool. We were like the party family (laughs) and um, everyone liked to come to our house for all of the functions and birthdays and New Year's celebrations and things like that. And um, I was pretty much raised to have a lot of confidence. Like my parents always kind of just pumped me up and just made me a confident kid. Um, I love to sing, I love to dance. I was a really super spunky kid. My older brother and I, we attended the same elementary school. We attended Highland Elementary School. I never liked school. <laughs> um, I remember faking stomach aches in like kindergarten. Um, I loved being with my friends at school. I went for my, I went to school for my friends.
1: <laughs> On August twelfth, two thousand, Midzi was walking home from school alone. Normally, she would be walking with her brothers.
2: It's about a seven-block walk from school to, to my home, and I was almost there. And I noticed that man sitting in his car. And um, as soon as I stepped onto the curb, I noticed him staring at me through his rearview mirror. And for me, that was odd because it was—there were never cars parked on that street. There were no homes, so it just didn't make sense to, for those cars to be there. And I am kid you not, my gut, that inside voice, which is the Holy Spirit, told me to cross the street. And like, and like we all do, I ignored it. And I just went on with my normal routine. He got out of his car and he asked me for help. He wanted me to help him. He said he broke his hip in a bike accident. And, um, and I felt sorry for him. My parents always taught me to be loving and kind and generous and helpful. Um, but my parents never told me that adults don't need help from children. And I don't think they knew that.
0: The man asked her to get something from his car. So I said, "Okay, you know, I'm going to help this guy and then get on. I opened up the car door and he leaned over me, leaned over me from behind and put his hands around my mouth. He threw me into the car and, you know, he said, if you try to get out or run, I'm going to shoot you. I have a gun in my truck. I was freaked out. I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know if it was real. I didn't know. I just, you know, I was in shock. We took off down the street, and as we took off towards the freeway entrance, I was looking back at my house, just wanting to be be there so bad, not with this weirdo. You know, I'm just like this scared little girl not knowing or understanding why this old man has me in his car, what he wants to do with me. I did, you know, everything he said. I didn't want to make him mad or I didn't want, you know, I I didn't want him to hurt me. So I just, I just went along. This episode of I
1: Survived is supported by Madison Reed. I've been dyeing my hair for about 10 years, and my options have always been the same, either outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a traditional salon. But Madison Reed is changing that. It's salon quality at-home hair color, starting at just $22. I Survived listeners get 10% off, plus free shipping, on their first color kit with code SURVIVED at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed takes at-home color to a new level, giving you gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home, and look as if you just came from the salon. And there's a reason Madison Reed is different from anything else out there. It's crafted by master colorists who blend light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 beautiful multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison readcom That's madison readcom And as a special bonus, I Survived listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code SURVIVED. That's code SURVIVED.
2: Podcast One presents, this is a collect call from Sing Sing. My name is John J.
0: Lennon. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. I'm also a contributor for Esquire magazine and The Marshall Project. So I'm a writer and
2: I'm a prisoner. Imagine trying to stay focused and talk about issues of substance, with geeks slamming, prisoners screaming, and PAs blaring in the background.
1: Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. He drove her to a quiet rest area miles from her home.
0: He asked me to change into some clothes, and the clothes that he had were another young girl's clothes, but they weren't they weren't new, they were used. He grabbed a, a chain from his trunk and he wrapped it around my ankle and he went and got a lock and he locked my ankle up and you know he tied it up to the gear shift. You know, I said, well, maybe if he lets me go to the bathroom, I can get away now, or you know, I can, you know, just leave, or maybe somebody will see me or help me. So I asked him. I asked him if I could, if I could go to the restroom, and he said, no, you can't. You can't get out of the car. So he hands me a cup. The man forced Mitzi to drink alcohol and showed her pornographic photos. He had a picture of a of a girl's breasts. It was an older woman. And then he pulled out his camera. He took my shorts off, and he proceeded to take pictures of of me. I was just hurt. I just didn't understand why he was doing it. I felt I felt nasty. I didn't you know, I didn't want to do it. I you know, but I didn't. I just you know, I had to do what he said. I didn't know what he was gonna do to me. You know, if I didn't. So I just I just went along. I was scared, and when he told me he had a gun, I, I believed him, so I just you know I, I don't know this guy. I don't know you know how crazy he is or what he what he can do or what he's capable of. Five hours had passed. It was starting to get dark,
1: and Midzi hadn't eaten since her lunch at school.
0: I was starving and he he didn't feed me he didn't give me water or anything to drink. As it got darker, I remember getting tired and you know I wanted to rest but I couldn't sleep and I looked over at him and he was knocked out, snoring. I kept fighting to stay awake. I didn't wanna go to sleep, I didn't trust him. I didn't know if he was gonna wake up or what he was gonna do to me. I just, I didn't get any sleep the first night. I remember seeing cops drive by us. I saw about two cop cars just drive right by us, going through the rest area, searching I guess. You know, I just wanted one of them to help me so bad, but nobody nobody stopped. None of them stopped. They spent the night in the car. The next morning, the sun comes up and I'm so exhausted. I didn't get any sleep and We left the rest area and he, you know, kicked me down to the floor again, covered me up with blankets, and we stopped at a house. I was trying to peek, but he said, you know, not to move.
1: Mitzi had been reported missing at 5.40 p.m. the previous evening. The FBI was called in, and sheriff's deputies with dogs began searching the 15-block area around her school. The school called every student's parents to see if they knew where Mitzi was. Midsie's parents went on the local news, pleading for their daughter's
2: return. They
1: don't talk about
2: it. They um, open up sometimes. Um, my parents had like a really, it, it's just a bad memory for them. Um, they I, I do remember them telling me they were upset because they were being questioned and treated as if they were the ones that were responsible for me being missing. Um... But as time went on, you know, and they were always, um, you know, working with the police and just being, doing what they were supposed to be doing um, through the case, the the police department, um, the police department really was like a huge help. Um, They did a lot. The community did a lot. Officers that are, you know, still my friends today have shared stories with me of them like swimming in water and searching in like ditches and on the sides of freeways and none they some didn't sleep for those three days, but there was just there there was so much support and the entire city of Vallejo was literally searching for me.
1: Volunteers were handing out flyers all over the city. The house Midzi mentioned earlier the one that she wasn't allowed to peek at.
0: That was her house. He had actually walked into our, our home asking for flyers so he could help pass them out around the city. He drove off with no
1: indication that the little girl they were looking for was in the car with him.
0: It took a while for us to get to our next destination. I remember we got it we drove into this city and you know we're at a stoplight and i see people i see them in their cars driving by and i'm looking at them hoping that they'll notice me or but nobody nobody noticed he parked the car at his work and went inside to watch the news coverage of her kidnapping he put blankets over the windows so no one could see in and the whole time he had me chained to the gear shift he would go in and watch watch the news. He'd go and watch my family plead in for whoever had their daughter to bring her back. When he got out of the car, I, you know, I did try to take the lock, and, you know, and you know wiggle it around. I tried to slide it off my foot. It wasn't going anywhere. It was it was on there pretty good.
1: Soon it got dark as her second day in captivity came to an end.
0: The second night we stayed in. We stayed in the parking lot of the industrial area. Nobody was around, and I remember him getting out of the car, and he asked me to move over into the driver's seat, and he pulled his pants down. And I remember him taking my clothes off, and then he proceeded to rape me. Like, I have the image in my head, you know, like the stars in the sky. And, you know, that was like the, that was all I was trying to focus on was the stars. I wasn't, I didn't want to look at him. I didn't want to talk to him. Like, I, I didn't want to look around the car. There was so much junk in the car, it was dirty. So I just try to focus on the, you know, the, the only thing that was looking beautiful to me at that time. I wasn't angry. I was just sad. I was just so sad. It just has to be something so wrong with this person for him to be able to do something like that to a child. It didn't work out the way he wanted to, so he kind of got pissed off and, you know, he just stopped. I got back into the passenger seat and I just I think I just remember just sitting there, looking up at this guy, you know, just like, I'm gonna be with him another night. I didn't know if I was gonna go home, or, you know, be with him forever. I didn't know if he was gonna kill me. I just, I didn't know. And I started praying. And I was just praying for God to, you know, to forgive me for being a bad little girl and always, you know, bugging my sister and, you know, not listening to my mom and dad. And, you know, I just, you know, wanted him to let my family know that I loved him. The next morning, her
1: captor went inside again to check the news. He came back to the
0: car, and he didn't get in this time. He just, he opened the passenger's. The passenger door leaned over me and dropped something. And so as soon as he left, I peeked to see if he was close by, and I looked over, and I pulled out a big old ring of keys, and I just picked out the smallest one that looked like it would fit into the lock, and I tried it, and it fit. And I opened the lock, took the chain off of my leg, I rolled the window down, and hopped out of the window. And then I see him. And he's yelling for me to come back, and he's like, come back, hey, you know, you come back here. And I look back at him, and I'm like, no, I'm not coming back. I walk towards the street, I'm looking at all the cars go by, I'm trying to wave them down, trying to get someone's attention, and, you know, nobody was stopping. And then I see this big old truck coming by, and I like ran in front of his truck on the middle of the street so he he, find, he he had to stop for me and at that time I see the guy coming out yelling at me come back here hey you come back here and I'm like no I'm not coming back I'm free I'm you know I'm, I'm not I wasn't in his hands anymore the truck driver had his window open, so I just jumped. I jumped through his window, jumped over his lap and got into and got into his, his passenger seat. And that's when he got on his CB radio and took the license plate number down.
1: Police arrived quickly to the scene, but her kidnapper fled as soon as he saw
2: that she got away. And they took really good care of me. The Santa Clara Police Department fed me. I think I ate like 20-piece chicken nuggets, and <laughs> they took me to the police station. They bought me new clothes. I had fresh, clean clothes.
1: From there, Mitzi was taken to the hospital to be examined.
2: And I had to go through the um, sexual assault examination, and um, that's something that's really important to talk about also because um, a lot of sexual assault cases and rape cases don't make it to court. Um, they almost never do, and that's because um, there's no witnesses, and most women and kids don't know that they have to go to a hospital and see a sexual assault nurse examiner within, like, a certain period of time. Um, I'd say right when it happens to up to 10 days, um, because semen doesn't stay around too long, um, but saliva does. and um, I had to endure that that examination. They swabbed my entire body. They took my clothes. Um, I still wasn't reunited with my parents yet, so I'm, like, still kind of stiff-necked around all these strangers. Um, although they were treating me good, I was still in, in shock from the last three days of being chained up in this man's car. And then they drove me back down to Vallejo, so I was reunited with my parents at Sutter Medical Center in Vallejo, my mom, my aunt, my dad. And it was just like the beginning of a whole day at the police department, Um, the next few days even. They questioned me, they did a sketch of him. um, They drove me, they made me drive them, well, tell them where to drive me around to all of the different locations that he took me to. So, like, the rest stop, the stores that were local to Vallejo, and um, just to kind of pretty much backtrack. And um, it was pretty traumatizing. I don't recommend that to any law enforcement, but hey, if you got to do it, you got to do it.
1: Curtis Dean Anderson was arrested around 7 o'clock p.m. the same day. Mitzi wasn't the first little girl he had kidnapped.
2: When I was with him, actually, he told me that he had done this to many girls and he'd killed them all and that none of them have ever, ever got away so that I better not try it. Um, But when I came home and I was kind of like putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, I um, was told that he did, in fact, kidnap and murder Ziana Fairchild, who was like the most beautiful seven-year-old Hawaiian baby girl from Vallejo, Sianna Fairchild was abducted December 9th, 1999,
1: just eight months before Mitzi. The girls lived two miles apart. Anderson later told investigators he held Sianna for several weeks before killing her.
2: And then years later, I think I was probably like 15 Um, when the FBI was knocking on my door and kind of bracing me um, for what the media was about to release publicly, and it was that, and he had, in fact, kidnapped and murdered Amber Schwartz Garcia. On June 3rd,
1: 1988, Amber Schwartz Garcia was taken from her front yard in Pinal, California, about 10 miles from Vallejo, where Mitzi lived. Anderson confessed to her murder in November of 2007 but no physical evidence has been found to corroborate his confession. According to the FBI, Anderson confessed to eight murders in total. If you enjoyed listening to I Survived and want even more true crime delivered right to your inbox, subscribe to A&E's Real Crime Newsletter. Be the first to receive interviews with your favorite A&E crime show personalities, get unique insights into some of the most notorious crime stories in history, and dive deeper into the behavior and personalities of infamous criminals. To subscribe to A&E's Real Crime Newsletter, go to aetv.com real crime to sign up. While you're there, check out A&E's Real Crime blog for everything true crime. Want to know what death row prisoners request as their final meals? Or what happens to a house where a gruesome murder took place? It's all on the Real Crime blog. Catch up today at aetv.com real dash crime.
2: My family was directed to not speak to me about it at all, um, which was, it was good and bad. They didn't want them digging um, or just asking questions or bringing it up. They wanted to make it like a normal life again, I guess. Um, but I, it's, it, it's impossible. You can't just go back to a normal life. Like, you're not the same 8-year-old or the same family. This, My siblings went through a bunch of stuff, too, and um, they they weren't the same. My family experienced a lot of hate. Crimes and bullying and just a bunch of um, disgusting things coming from people that lived around us that thought it was funny. Um, Or, you know, they'd say things like, we've got her, and drive by. Midzie's house wasn't the most stable,
1: even before her kidnapping.
2: Honestly, this is so bad. I only remember us fighting. Like, it was... A rare moment that my sister tolerated me. (laughs) Um, My brother that went to school with me that was about the same age, we always bumped heads. Um, We came from a home of alcoholics. And at the end of all of those fun parties I was telling you about, like, everything in the house would be broken. And um, just a little bit of dysfunction, like, you know, most families do have. And... um, like, there wasn't a lot of, like, I love you for mom, or she wasn't, like, super affectionate. Um, it was really kind of—it was kind of the opposite with my dad. I was his first and only daughter. Um, and my brother was his first and only son. The other siblings were from other marriages that my mom had. We all, all got the same mom. But um, it was it was kind of a stressful— Stressful household, yes, we had fun, but like I said, soccer was our outlet. That was our way to get out of the house and to just be kids.
1: After Mitzi's abduction, the whole family went to therapy.
2: There was therapy for everyone that was willing to, to take it, but none of us really stuck through and did all of the therapy sessions that we should have. Um... My dad promised God that he'd stop drinking when if he got me back. And my mom kept drinking, so they, like, saw each other through different eyes. Um, and then they both started drinking again. <laughs> and um, the fighting was still happening because of, you know, the alcoholism and um, kids became angry and um, therapy wasn't—we weren't willing to go anymore. Um, but therapy for me personally, as a kid, helped me get through court. It was like the best way to prepare for trial because I knew that I was going to be in front of a judge and a jury and an audience. And we set up like teddy bears and I we just we kind of role played. So I knew what to expect. Um, again, she, you know, was open and honest. And when I had to face the reality of court, it was like a breeze because I knew what was coming.
1: In April 2001, Anderson faced kidnapping and 10 sexual molestation charges that could carry a sentence of up to 250 years. A formal plea deal was never made, but in preliminary discussions, an offer of 75 years to life was discussed in an effort to spare Mitzi from testifying he rejected this offer. Anderson's attorney said he wanted, quote, something without a life sentence on the end of it, something with a certain number of years. Midzi took the stand, wearing a blue dress and carrying a doll.
2: I stood up boldly and was the best witness, regardless of age, in that courtroom. Alan Carter, he was the most amazing, amazing judge. He's retired now. But he um, gave that man 251 years on my case alone, and not on any of the other girls that he murdered, because there were no witnesses or no evidence, just his his word saying he did that. Um, but he, he bragged about it. Mitzi
1: was present for the sentencing in July of 2001.
2: It was a packed courtroom. This was like a, this was a nationwide story. Everybody wanted to be there, and everybody like just got out of hand they were clapping and yelling and screaming and the judge had to shut everybody up because he needed some order in his court but um it just it was it was overwhelming you know um i'll never forget that moment because like i didn't have it i don't i don't think i really realized or was able to grasp what was happening but when he was given his sentence of 251 years, I thought that was great. But just to feel the emotion of the entire courtroom and, like, I'm trying to even take myself back to that moment. Um, it's just, it brings back so many emotions because, like, I, I did that. And any kid can do that. You know, they don't have to be afraid of some man because they're bigger and stronger. Um, But to be someone who was able to outsmart that person and show him that somebody could get away, he just was so bold and confident in himself. He had no clue what was coming.
1: With the trial over, Mitzi wanted to go back to just being an 8-year-old, but that wasn't so easy.
2: I went back to school like almost immediately. And that was tough because kids surrounded me and they were all watching me at home on the news. And they'd say things like, what happened to you? Were you scared? what do you do? And like 30 kids would surround me at once on the playground. And I just was like, why do you want to know? You don't want to know. And I don't want to tell you. <laughs> Um, I think that they, the kids at school, were told to pretty much leave me alone. Um, And so that died down. But between third grade and fifth grade, there were always little comments and things that kids would say. I don't recall them. But as I got into middle school, um, I got a bunch of crap from the kids um, in, in sixth grade, seventh grade, And then eighth grade, I had children coming up to me and saying things like, oh, you think you're stuck up because you're on TV or go F the guy that kidnapped you. Um, I'm going to have my uncle come and kidnap you. Like, these kids would just say crazy things to me. And, I mean, it hurt. Like, it hurt me to the core because they had no idea that while I was kidnapped, this old white man was making me— do things to him that should only be between a a husband and wife. And it, it made me angry. And I got tired of it. So it went from kids bullying me and mocking me to at the tone of anyone saying, are you Mitzi Sanchez? I would just beat him up because if I could stop them from even hurting me or I didn't even want them to think about asking me those questions. so pretty soon um, I just I just I just became a fighter and I, the friends that I surrounded myself with were were fighters too and we were drinkers and we were smokers and We were popping pills and we were doing everything that we could get our hands on. And, but we talked very little about the trauma that we all experienced. Now that we're older, we know, like, she grew up with a crackhead mom. She was, you know, probably abused too. I was abducted and grew up around drunks. And, my other friend grew up in foster care and her mom was on dope, but we never talked about that. And um, we didn't know how to, we didn't know how to release that. So we did it through our partying and through our fighting and ultimately ended us up in juvenile hall. I personally liked it because I was by myself and I didn't have to be around other other kids or deal with other people's junk. I would sit in my, in my room by myself and I'd write. And writing was the outlet for me.
1: On December 9th, 2007, just eight years into a sentence, Curtis Dean Anderson died of natural causes.
2: When I found out he died, I, I was disappointed while everybody else was cheering and excited about it. Let's see. Um, okay, so I think I, I think I was about 14 and I was on probation at the time. And my uh, probation officer called me and she was like cheering and she was like, he's dead. <laughs> and I was just like, so. Because I didn't want him to die. I felt like he had died too soon. He had only served eight years and died in Corcoran State Prison from liver failure, but. He had been kidnapping and murdering girls since the 70s. So to me, I felt like he got off way way too soon, way too early. And I, I, I think I wanted him to suffer. I ran the streets and ran into so many people that like maybe did dope with him or people that were locked up with him or people that even worked in the prisons that he was living in. And they would tell me the stories of things that would happen while he was in there. And it kind of gave me a little bit of, you know, just, I don't even know what's the word, but it, it made me feel content. Like, okay, good, that's what he, that's what he deserves. He, he, he deserves to be in prison and, and get messed with. He did not live a, a fun life while he was in prison. A lot of these prisoners have children, too, and it's just not tolerated, you know. So he got off way too, way too soon. Eight years wasn't enough, but it's God's plan, not mine. (laughs) Mitzi continued drinking
1: and getting into trouble. She says she avoided dealing with her trauma. Then she saw a missing persons flyer for 8-year-old Sandra Cantu in Tracy, California.
0: Actually, I I, said, I knew
2: I wanted to do something the moment I saw her flyer. I, I went to Tracy to go to a car show with my friends. When we got to Tracy, the whole city was, like, going crazy. There was cops everywhere. The community was running all—it was, like, insane. Um, and we stopped at a jack-in-the-box, and I saw her flyer on the— wall I ripped the flyer off the wall and I called my aunt and I just was like in tears and I could not stop crying I didn't know why I just was like I want to I want to do something and she said you know come home and we're gonna figure out what we can do and so I took that flyer to Vallejo and I went to Minutemen Press they donated 3,000 copies of her flyers and we started posting them around town And the Vallejo Times-Herald wanted to come and do a story with me after Times-Herald came, Channel 2 came, and Channel 4, and every single Bay Area news station was there wanting to interview me. Um, But it was something that I felt like I was called to do. For those first 10 days that that girl was missing was the first time that I told my story a hundred times because I knew that every time I shared my story, it was for a purpose and it was to get that little girl's face on the Bay Area news. And it ended up becoming another nationwide story. And and it just it and it showed and aired more and more every time that I got in front of a camera and shared my story and it was different from when the kids were wanting to know what happened to me because they were being nosy now I had a purpose now I had a a, a reason to talk about my abduction I was 16 years old and that was the first time I ever got sober so that I could help this family
1: after a 10 day search Police found Sandra's body in a suitcase in an irrigation pond. She had been abducted and murdered by Melissa Huckabee, the mother of one of Sandra's friends. Huckabee says she doesn't know why she murdered Sandra.
2: Unfortunately, she was found dead in a suitcase, um, which broke, up, broke my heart and opened up a whole nother can of worms for me. But that little girl showed me who I was placed on this earth to be, and I will never forget her or her family. Um, But I've not really gone to therapy really, so I didn't really deal with the trauma. It broke my heart so bad, because I knew we were going to find her alive. And when we didn't, it was like, I felt like I was giving the family false hope. Although they didn't look at it in that way, they still embraced me, and they said that I gave them a second win. They were able to lift their heads up and continue searching for their daughter, and I didn't want to show my face around them because I felt like, why did my family get me back and they couldn't have their daughter back? So it was something that I just had to deal with. I started drinking again, um, blacking out and Ended up in a drinking and driving car accident, flying through the window, broken everything from the waist up, including my neck.
1: In the early morning of May 1st, 2009, Midzi and three friends had been drinking. They went out driving, veered off the road, and flipped the truck they were in. Everyone but the driver was thrown from the vehicle.
2: Well, um, the car accident literally stopped me in my tracks, because before that car accident, I was always fighting, and um, just in a disastrous gang lifestyle, and, you know, the drugs and alcohol and everything. It just was a crazy life, and being disabled and bedridden and not able to bathe myself feed myself do my hair like I I couldn't even shave my legs (laughs) it was it was it was rough like I had to go through a really rough stage because I I I was disabled and um it made me feel like less of a woman it made me feel like I couldn't protect myself so I didn't want to go out and be seen by someone and be attacked by them and 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 get beat up. I, I was scared for my life. Um, but also, I found out that I was pregnant and during the car accident I was pregnant with my daughter who I have now. And between the car accident and becoming a mom, you know, honestly, if I didn't have my daughter, I probably would have still been doing the same stuff. Because I'm healed. I'm, you know, walking and I'm healthy again. Uh, because I did not did not care about myself. But having her gave me like a, a heart of flesh. It gave me a, a whole new view on the world. She taught me how to love again. And I now cared about her more than I cared about myself. And so my life just started to change. And by choice. Because I now I want to be better. I you know I still thrive to be better every single day. And although I'm not where I used to be, um, I'm you know I'm not perfect, but but at least I have a, a desire to be better.
1: Mitzi also had great mentors come into her life that helped
2: her make better decisions. I had this angel lady named Auntie Mary. She's like everyone in Vallejo's Auntie. (laughs) She was the one that taught me how to pray. She taught me how to be in service. She brought me to um, AA. She, you know, was just herself, and she, like, never judged me. She loved me even though I was, like, this troubled teenager. And um, that made a huge impact on my life because she didn't give up on me. And I also had a mentor in the juvenile hall that I was at, uh, Mrs. Williams, and, you know, she knew my story. And I just, I was really favored because everybody knew my story. Um, But she would, like, pop my cell door open and she'd sit with me and just talk to me. And she just gave me that quality time and love that I needed, that I wasn't getting. Um, But I wasn't allowing anyone to give it to me either. Because I was so um, distant from people and anyone that tried to get near me, I, I didn't want it because I wasn't ready. But in like my most vulnerable moments, I was so blessed to have those mentors that and, and many people took their time out to, to speak to me. And I um, I, I remember those moments I'll, because it they gave me their one on one attention. And I think that's so important. Even if we just could stop for a minute to speak to someone, they, you know, we might not remember what we said to them, but they know what we made their heart feel like in that moment. And that really matters.
1: Mitzi continues her advocacy work and has been involved with 10 more missing persons cases since Sandra Cantu. Two came home
2: alive, um... I think I can, goodness, I want to say two were found deceased and the rest are just still missing. Um, But aside from that, just being able to give people a person to talk to because people trust me with their stories. And I get women and men of all ages, and I'm talking like young men my age to senior men and senior women that find out who I am and they share their stories with me for the first time and they've never ever done it before. And it always reminds me about why I choose to advocate because it gives people a voice they can finally spit it out and not hold on to that anymore.
1: Mincy has come a long way, but she's still trying to regain the self-worth she remembers having as a spunky
2: eight-year-old kid. I think I'm still getting it back. (laughs) Um, It's been lost since since I was a kid, but, you know, as I became a mom, as, you know, and I I was a teenage mom, um, then, you know, I started to feel different, and then, you know my daughter and i grew together she started kindergarten and i started taking on other responsibilities and all the while i'm still still advocating not so much but just as as the years go on and and i really truly go into my purpose and and into my motherhood and just like who i am as a daughter and and just as a woman like i'm i'm grasping that and I think it's something that we, you know, we we, we find with time and with patience and with experience comes wisdom. And, you know, as we just, we grow into our womanhood, that that self-worth kind of just like grows with
1: us, right? Her daughter is now around the age she was when she was abducted. Mitzi doesn't shy away from talking to her about the dangers that
2: are out there. She just turned nine, so... Right before she hit her eighth birthday, I had, like, a serious trauma meltdown because all of this stuff was resurfacing that I thought I was okay with. Um, But... You know, it's been the best year that I've ever had with her. She advocates with me. She presents with me. She's a smart, amazing girl. She talks to kids at her school about safety. Um, And I never imagined our life to be like that because, you know, I I wanted a boy. I was like, God's not going to give me a girl. I want a boy because I know what happens to girls. But he knew exactly what I needed. And I'm just grateful that I have a child that's strong-willed and that has an advocate's heart. I started talking to my daughter when she was three years old. Since she started spitting out words. And um, she's always known my story. I don't want to sugarcoat anything, and I don't want to keep her in this bubble and her go out into the world and be shocked when the world hits her. Being able to share with her what's out in the world and saying this happened to me and this is why I, this is what I don't wanna to happen to you and you have to be prepared. And this is why I'm telling you, it might not sound fun. It might not be comfortable. Um, it's actually a really uncomfortable conversation, but I'm telling you because I love you and I don't want to have to be put in a position that is going to take me away from you. And that's like the ultimate fear of mine especially her being the age that I was when I was taken.
1: Mitzi's work as an advocate led her to start her own nonprofit organization.
2: Stay alive was something that my dad always said to me, and um, it wasn't until my teenage years that I was, like, running amok. And every time I left his site, he would say, Mija, stay alive, make the right decisions, the right choices, and um, you'll be okay, just come back home. And and it stuck with me. So after the car accident, um, and I, you know, still here, <laughs> I decided to get Stay Alive tattooed. And it just became an idea and something fun for me. And, um, gosh, I had been through so many near-death experiences, not just from the kidnapping but the car accident and everything in between that I caused. Um, in that lifestyle, but it just, it stuck with me and it was so powerful. So I decided to um, just start making t-shirts and doing like fun stuff. Um, And it ended up becoming like a movement, you know, after being Taken all over the country with the Class Kids Foundation, doing child safety events. I knew that it was something that I always wanted to do for myself. I wanted to have my own organization. I had already been advocating and helping families for the last ten years, but June eleventh, twenty eighteen, I started the Mid C Sanchez Foundation, and um, my organization works with families of missing children, and we teach them how to utilize media. We teach them um, how to. Get together a group of volunteers to pass out flyers to just like how to begin this movement and let people know and make them aware that your child is missing and you are looking for them. We, you know, get food donations and things because if these families aren't eating, they're not working. They need toilet paper. They got to pay their light bill, you know. So we just do what we can to teach them how to how to fundraise and how to utilize the media to get their story out so that they can get attention and um, hopefully, you know the help from law enforcement, um, because basically if you're a teenager and you're missing, good luck, especially if you have like a history of running away. And it's not always the case. Um, And even if they are runaways, they're still in danger.
1: Stay Alive also wants to teach children safety
2: measures to help prevent kidnappings before they happen. We want to use animatronic puppets to teach the kids about child safety. And we're also even... Mixing in some martial arts in there and just letting kids know about that good instinct and um, how to know when they're in an uncomfortable situation. So our goal is to teach child safety and hopefully save kids. Well, they'll, you know, have to save themselves sometimes. Um, but if they have these tools, they can do what I did. Um, and they could prevent from them being taken or being abused by a family
1: member. Being involved in these cases takes a toll. Most of the kids don't come home. But even with the unlikelihood of a happy ending, Mitzi
2: always keeps hope. Gosh, this is hard to say. I've never said this publicly. But um, although I'm, I'm with the family and and my heart is with them, and I wouldn't, gosh, I, I, I couldn't even say it to them because I don't know if their child's going to come back or not. But I know what the statistics are. And... Just kind of preparing myself and knowing... You know, you expect the... You have to just expect the... What is... Gosh, expect the worst. Hope for the best. (laughs) Hope for the best. Expect the worst. Um, Gosh, it's... I'll never let... I mean, I don't know what cases we'll have in the future. I'm sure there's always going to be those those kids or those families that just stick with me, but never like the first time. You know, I, I, I knew that girl was going to come home. I knew I was going to meet her, and then she didn't come home alive. So, just knowing that there is a possibility that they won't make it back, um, kind of eases the pain for me, um, never for the family because once we get that news of a loved one gone, it's never easy, especially considering, you know, their, their relationship, but I, I know what to expect and we don't always get those great stories, you know, some of them suck. And if they don't come back, those, most of the time, those families join us in searches for others. And it's a healing process for everyone. To just be able to put themselves in service really helps us heal. It gives us a sense of purpose again.
1: If you want to learn more about Stay Alive, you can find more information at midzysanchez.com. To talk to someone confidentially at the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, call 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also live chat with someone at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. I'm Caitlin Van Moll, host and senior producer. Our producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Ted Butler. Our editor and sound designer is Steve Delamater, I Survived was originally produced by NHNZ. To hear more I Survived, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.